So be happy when you have hard times. Bring it on. That's not exactly a message uh, we want to hear. And I feel like I'm a little loud there. Or is that just me? When you say we're supposed to be happy to have problems and trials and struggles in life, that um, seems crazy to me. You've got to be kidding that we would want that. And in reality, we don't go looking for it. We don't go looking for troubles. But the reality in life is that troubles will find us. They'll come looking for us. They all, all of us experience difficult times in our lives. It is what James, in his writing about new growth through adversity, James, we think, the author of James, we think, was the very brother of Jesus, who at first really struggled uh, to believe Jesus was the Son of God, but later came to faith. And his uh, book is a very practical book about teaching. And one of the things he says right off the bat in James 1, verse 2, is, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its uh, work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Try to pull this up a little bit. It's as if James is saying, you really can't grow into Christian maturity until you have experienced hard times. If your faith is never tested, you'll never know how strong or mature your faith is. And so what's important is for us to understand that God allows us to suffer. He allows us to have struggles in life because it is how one of the ways in which we grow. And indeed, I think most of us can look back in our lives who have been Christians for a while, and I've heard it from so many others, that those times in life that were the hardest is when I grew the most. We don't like it, we don't look for it, but if we're understanding Scripture, we accept it and embrace it as part of God's discipline, as Ben talked about last week, as part of God's provision to us for our growth into complete maturity. In Central America, there is a saying that you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And one of the struggles I think we have in our society is that we have so much that we have so few needs in our lives. And it's actually when we struggle that perhaps we realize how much we need the Lord more than any other time. Uh, Jesus spoke frankly, just as James did with his disciples when he was training them to lead when he was gone. In John 15, in his last speech to his disciples, and that beautiful passages of 15 and 16, 17, in John, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would, uh, have, uh, it would love you as your own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. When I moved to, to Walmigo, Kansas, I play a little golf, so I joined the Walmigo Golf Club, which is pretty close to our home, and I started playing with the noon group for a while, the older guys, mostly retired. And uh, frankly, for the first couple, three weeks, I felt very unwelcome. 
And I had told my wife, I said, I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. It just seems like they really don't want somebody new around. Well, finally, one of the gentlemen told me one day, he said, you know, Ron, it says, we're glad you're here. But at first, we weren't sure we wanted you because they knew I was a pastor. And they were afraid that my pastoring meant that I would bring judgment, that I would disapprove of their language, which is pretty bad sometimes. In fact, there's one guy I ride with who curses all the time, and one day we came in uh, from playing, and the guys were gathered around the patio there, and they said, well, how'd it go with, I won't say his name, uh, today? And I said, well, you know, we had a lot of theological discussions. Uh, we talked about God and Jesus just about every shot, or at least he did. <laughs> so not in the way that we would like, but that's the way it went. But I tried to show them that I have grace towards them, that I love them and want to be with them. But what Jesus says is, if you're not of the world, the world won't like you. If you don't live outside of, if you, outside of Christian values, many people who don't have Christian values won't want to be around those who do because it brings guilt in their own lives and heart. Jesus warned us about that. There will be difficulties in relationship sometimes that we have as Christians. We always want to break down the barriers and love others, but sometimes they won't love and accept us. You know, would it surprise you to learn that Christianity is growing its fastest in the countries of the world where Christianity is illegal, where persecution abounds? Think about that for a moment in context of what the Scripture is teaching us. Those who have the most adversity in the world those where Christianity is the most difficult to live because of illegality and persecution is where the gospel is spreading the fastest. It's an affirmation, really, of the lesson that God brings maturity through life's adversity to us. We, we have so many first world problems, you know, that we struggle with and we joke about sometimes. There's a, a Christian comedian, Tim Hawkins. Any of you ever heard Tim Hawkins do his stuff? If not, look him up. He's really pretty good. And he talked once about uh, his, he and his wife took his daughter to the mall, and she was meeting her friends to go shopping, and they got there, and her friends weren't there on time. And she was saying, oh, no, I can't. I want to go shopping, and now I've got to wait. I've got to sit on the curb until my friends get here, if they get here. And the mother said, oh, that's the worst. So Tim Hawkins says, that's the worst. And I wish I could do it like he did. I can't. I tried a little bit to do the Spanish accent, but I, I butcher it too badly. So he talks about, you know those miners in Chile that were trapped underground for days? They couldn't, they didn't have food to eat, and it was cold, and they didn't know if they were going to get out, if they were going to die right there. The air was hard to breathe, and they couldn't breathe. And so one of the miners said, you know, this is the worst. There's only one thing I can think of that's worse than this, and that's to go to the mall and your friends aren't there when you want to go shopping. Well, that's how ridiculous we get in our society. We think, we think silly things are hard. Uh, sometimes we may have our car die on us. Uh, I don't know. Is, uh, I don't, didn't know if Taylor was in here. Last week, the Hillegeist had their car die at the, right in the corner of 4th and Points, uh, and they had to replace the alternator eventually. And uh, that's, you know, that's a problem. That's, you know, we got three kids in the car and you're trying to get home and but Pastor Ben comes to the rescue. Or I drive into uh, 
what is this town, Manhattan from Wamego, and I'm going to Staples to get some supplies I need at 9 in the morning, and I find out they don't open till 10, and I was pretty upset for a minute. I thought, why, why would they wait till 10 to open the store? What I found out is because they can't get enough help right now, so if you're looking for a job, they need help. Anyway, we tend to live in a free society where we can worship and follow Christ without uh, restriction. Our faith is seldom tested uh, in, in the same kind of ways that others are in the world. But I'm not saying we don't have struggles because we do. Obviously, when a child dies of cancer, or as I saw in the news last night, a child was shot in a road rage accident in California, I think it was California. Or when we lose a job and we don't know if we can pay our bills, or when a believer goes through a divorce or loses her spouse to death, when we are in the doctor's office and told that you just have a few months to live unless you can get a lung transplant, or we hear the C word with the words stage four in front of it, or when a young couple has to deal with the loss of a pregnancy like many of our fellowship here at Tallgrass have experienced, what Dylan and Crystal are going through with some health issues in their lives and their loss, these are hard times, and life can be very difficult even in this wonderful free society in which we live. We do have troubles, and I'm not minimizing that. What I'm wanting us to do is to embrace it. As the scripture teaches us, we can draw encouragement and strength from knowing that God's power in totalitarian societies is at work. That where persecution abounds, God is able to lift up his people and he's able to spread the church and build the kingdom. That's an encouragement to us. But I can't tell you how many people I've met over a half century of ministry who don't understand that God has not promised us a life free of troubles. So many Christians think that because we're Christians, God owes us a life that doesn't have these struggles in them. People have said things to me like, I used to go to church, I used to be a Christian until our son was killed in an accident or in war or whatever it might be. And I just thought, if God was there, why did he let that happen to me? And so we've turned away. That's not an uncommon statement. I've heard that way too many times. We have not taught a proper theology of suffering in the, in the American church. We don't have faith in a God big enough to be our God when times are tough. We just want a God who blesses us and loves us and gives us joy and grace and happiness, who fits our ideals of what life should be like, and we don't always want a God, or we don't trust in a God big enough to be our God when times are really tough. So we know the reality. We know that we live in a world where there is pain and suffering and that God has chosen to create it that way. He could have created it differently. C.S. Lewis in his writings points out that there has to be the opposite for there to be meaning to a word. You can't have beauty unless you have ugly. You can't have love unless you have hate. It's, there's no definition to something that has no antithesis or no opposite. God could have created a world where we could not sin, where there was no pain and suffering, but it would be an entirely different kind of existence. And according to C.S. Lewis, we would be more like puppets, that God was just orchestrating and making do what he wanted us to do to make us be righteous, which we cannot be within ourselves because we're not God, and the world would be not a real place. There would not be freedom of choice. There would not be free will. 
And without free will, there would not be the kinds of bad decisions that we make now as human beings. We know the reality. Let's seek to think about how God can help us grow through adversity. Just finishing with the book of James for a moment. In chapter 1, verse 5, James says that faith is required of us. You can't know God's strength if you turn away from him. And if we are caught up in doubt, we will be tossed around like the waves of the sea by those times of turbulence that do come our way. That's a paraphrase of his teaching. In verse 12, he says these words, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I want to switch over just for a few minutes to the book of Romans and talk what Paul teaches. But see, we've looked at what James has taught. Let's talk about Paul for a moment. Paul in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, has a very important passage, and it's one that I want to bring some things from. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, or other versions say disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me a quick background set the stage. Paul hasn't actually been to the church at Rome when he writes this letter. He's writing it from Corinth during three months that he was there. But he has emissaries there who he's communicating with, obviously, because he knows quite a bit about the church at Rome from what we see in the letter that he wrote. He has Priscilla and Aquila, who he's worked alongside as fellow missionaries uh, throughout his time, fellow apostles. Uh, we also learn in the last chapter of Rome, uh, Romans, the 16th chapter, about a lot of people that he greets in the church at Rome. That includes Adronicus and Junius, who interestingly, he says, are relatives of his who have spent some time in prison with him. They kind of prove their mettle. And they are called apostles. That's the only time we ever hear of Adronicus and Junius, and there are some who believe that Junia was a female. It's one of those things that we can't know for sure, but it's speculated that that was typically... It could be a boy named Sue, but it, we don't know. So it was typically a female name uh, in that time in history. But my point is that there had been those there, and I think perhaps, it's just my speculation, that Adronicus and Junius as apostles may have been the very ones who established the church at Rome before Paul was ever there. We don't know that, but it's possible. But as they established the church in Rome, they're up against some real obstacles. Rome is not a, a spiritual city at all. One challenge they face is that of uh, Roman paganism, not a, not a Christian state at all, with dozens of gods who specialize in different things. For example, Neptune was the Roman god of the sea and the guardian of sea travelers. If you have a safe trailing, sailing trip, think Neptune. But if you encounter a storm at sea, then Neptune is angry and showing his displeasure to the sailors. Or Cirrus, who was a goddess of grain and corn, and in her name you hear the word cereal, which we understand from grain. If you wish a good grain harvest, you must pray or make offerings to Cirrus. So in Roman mythology, 
human suffering or struggle comes from the pleasure or displeasure of those various gods and goddesses, and it was a human responsibility to try and keep them appeased so they would not be angry at you through offerings to the idols. Another challenge to Christian worldview in Rome was the teaching of wisdom tradition, which says in life we get exactly what we earn. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. It's like karma. Health, happiness, and prosperity follow the good, and tragedy, injury, and misfortune follow the unfaithful. It's not unlike Job's friends, remember, who told Job that all of his suffering was because he must have done something really bad to displease God. And certainly this kind of worldview has creeped into the modern church and into our lives. I grew up this way. I grew up in a legalistic tradition that if I did pretty well, if I was in church enough and I gave my tithe of my paper route money and I didn't curse or I didn't play the pinball machine because that was gambling when I was raised or play with playing cards, only a rook card, all of those kinds of things. You can't play baseball on Sunday. But when I would do some of those things, sneak off and play the pinball machine of all things, I felt like God must have been really unhappy with me. And I wasn't sure I'd go to heaven if I died right then. <clears throat> I didn't have this sense of assurance at all. And there's too much of that in legalistic Christianity, that it's our performance that earns us God's approval and privilege. And if we just do enough, uh, then he'll love us. I have a college professor friend who said it this way, and I felt like this is pretty accurate to my growing up experience, and he grew up in the same kind of church, that when I get to heaven, I picture God saying to me, Kenny, Come on in. I know you accepted me and you tried to follow me, but would you just stay out of my sight because you really disgust me? And that's how I felt sometimes, that I couldn't ever have this friendship. I couldn't have this peace relationship with God that this scripture talks about. And I want to talk just a little bit more about that. None of these worldviews has any understanding of a loving God or even a close relationship with a God who is on our side and indwells us and guides and teaches us. Paul is saying the Christian worldview was very different than the other worldviews that the Romans were exposed to. Paul is saying that God is personal, loving, gracious, and merciful to our human condition. He wants to know us, forgive us, and embrace us, even to adopt us into his family as his children. Paul teaches that this is the God we know through Jesus Christ. That's what we learn from who Jesus dwelling on the earth as God become flesh. And this is why the book of Romans has some of the most beautiful teachings in all of the scriptures about human suffering, about grief and hardship and struggle, turmoil and the pain that life can serve up, but the victory that God can give us amidst this times, these times of adversity and the new growth that can come into our lives when we understand that God is with us that he does not hate us, that he is not looking to reject us, that he is looking to help and guide us. He has placed his spirit in us and taught us that we are his sons and daughters and that he will be with us in all circumstances through his indwelling spirit. So I want to pull out just two quick advantages, just really kind of breaking down these five verses, and you'll see them quickly. Uh, the first advantage that we want to talk about from Romans 5, 1 through 5, is that we have this advantage of a secure relationship with the God of glory, the creator of the universe. How amazing is that? 
The very first verses of Romans 5 start with, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, therefore, is a transitional word. And it's pointing back to the first four chapters of Rome, Romans, the letter of Romans, that Paul wrote. And if you know that book very well, you know that Paul spends a lot of time in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 discussing how all human beings are sinful, that there are none who are righteous, not even one, and that we exchange the glory of God to worship created things, that we've turned away from the purity of God to lives of sexuality, improper sexuality, lives of uh, disobedience, lives of hatred and sinfulness. And he establishes man is sinful. There's no one who isn't. But then he teaches us in Romans 4.21 at the end of this argument that he's been making about how we are sinful, but how the law cannot change us, how we can't keep the law, and the law does not change our hearts and perfect us. In Romans 4.21, he says, Now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are at peace because of what Jesus did for us. So the first aspect that Paul points out, he's teaching us that we have an advantage as we face adversity to know that we are at peace with God, that we are his friends, that he's with us and will help us. We are at peace with God because of what Jesus does for us, has done for us on the cross. Secondly, our faith gives us access into this grace, this undeserved privilege in which we stand. I can't adequately put into words how important this is. And unfortunately, I was a few years into pastoring before I really understood God's grace. I'd been studied it and taught it, but I still was kind of afraid of it. Some people in my tradition would talk about greasy grace or cheap grace. That somehow we think if uh, we really embrace the message of grace that we're all, well, hey, if God likes to forgive so much, I'll go ahead and sin. Hey, 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 we're a pretty good deal. He likes to forgive. I like to sin. We got quite a partnership here. And I had been kind of taught that way and trained that way, and it was hard for me to release that. And so in many ways, I never really lived in my early years of ministry with this inner security that I am at peace with God, and he's my friend, and that he has invited me into this uh, undeserved privilege of grace in which I stood. Not because I earned it, but because he gave it to me. That my righteousness is what Jesus credited to me. That he who had no sin took my sin on the cross so that I who was a sinner could become a son of God. For many years, I used the word sonship as kind of a an expression of my new understanding of God's love and grace. But I'm not an orphan. I'm not a, a, a child that God didn't want <laughs> and is displeased with. I'm not uh, somebody who, who God really doesn't care about. I am the Son of God. We are all sons and daughters of God when we come into faith. And he is as loving toward us as any of us would be towards our precious children that we hold in our arms. He promises us that, that we're not, in Romans he says, we're not to be like slaves fearing our master, but we're to live a spirit of sonship 
knowing that God has loved us and invited us into his grace. And thirdly, under this secure relationship, we see from Romans 5 that we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. I used to do a lot of, of backpacking trips in Colorado, and I'm going to grab my water cup. I always get dry. Was it going to squeal when I come out here? A lot of backpacking trips in Colorado, and uh, one of the things we would do, I, I had friends I went with a lot, but I also took a lot of church groups, which were really spiritual growth experiences as we learned to understand each other's weirdnesses and work together as a team and stretch one another. is always a faith-stretching experience. But one of the things we would do was quiet time. We'd just go out and sit for quite a while. One day I spent a whole day while two of my buddies wanted to go climb another peak, and I'd already done a 14er on that trip, and that was enough for this old man. So uh, I just had a whole day just sitting kind of on the rocks, looking down the valley, watching some, some fawn play, uh, one over where I could see a beaver dam, and, but just sitting. And, it, and anytime I was on top of a 14,000-foot peak or just in the mountains, I always had this sense of, of being overwhelmed by this vastness. And that's just a small little piece of, of this vast universe. But I always had that feeling of how big God was and how little I was. Been learning to understand that this God of the universe, this glorious creator, has created such a magnificent planet for us to enjoy. That God has invited us into this personal, intimate relationship. That He puts His Spirit, which is hard for us to even comprehend. The Spirit of God indwells every one of us sitting here this morning as a, as a follower of Christ. And he invites us to share in his glory. It's awesome. It's overwhelming. There's a second advantage that we enjoy from Romans 5. This first three points come under that idea that we have this intimate, secure relationship. But then he starts talking about suffering. And he teaches us that we know God will bring adversity in our lives to bring our faith to maturity. It's the same thing James taught, and it's what Paul is teaching here. His first point in this verses, these five verses, the second half of it, we accept there will be adversity, and we trust God to use it to build endurance. Other versions say perseverance or steadfastness to build endurance in our lives. I may have shared this story before, but it's, it's good to share again if I, if I did, and I don't remember. Uh, Joyce was a young lady in our a church in my early ministry. They were friends of ours, a young couple. And uh, at the age of 28, she got breast cancer, and we weren't able to help. Those were many years ago, and they didn't have the treatments they have now. And, and uh, she battled it for four years uh, before it took her life. But when I would spend time with Joyce and Keith as a young pastor, I was just overwhelmed by their faith and how strong they were. So I asked Joyce one day, I said, Joyce, don't you sometimes just want to cry out, why me? She said, I did right at first, and I felt God answered me with these words, why not me? What she meant was that this world has suffering in it, and cancer is not a respecter of persons. 
It's not the bad who get bad karma and get cancer and the good don't. It's that as the rain falls on the good and the evil, as the sun shines on the good and evil, suffering comes to the good and evil. It's going to happen. So some of us, some of us in this room will probably battle with cancer. We already have that. Crystal's been fighting this battle. Some of us will experience losses we don't want to experience. I love life and my family and my grandchildren, and I want to be here for a long, long time. But those years, <laughs> it's getting narrower and narrower, you know, when you're 73. And that's just reality. I know I'm facing that. And yet, I know that God has promised me that perseverance in face of these things will work. Joyce understood that. She persevered. She was steadfast in the facing of her suffering. And those of us who have lived a little longer can attest that, indeed, as I shared earlier, when we look back, we see that during the hard times we've grown. Barb and I had some difficult times in our lives together. Sometimes our struggles were unpleasant and painful, but we can look back and see that through endurance, God was building our character, and that's the second point that Paul gives. We know endurance leads to strength of character. I'm a lot stronger man on the inside than I was 20 years ago, tons stronger than I was 40 years ago or 50 years ago. And a lot of that strength that God has planted in me has come from life experiences, good and bad. I've had ministries that were difficult. This is not new for me, Ben, <laughs> to be with a church that has some struggles. I started with a new church in Kansas City, started a new campus ministry at Kansas University. And you know how tough that must have been, right? All UK staters, I'm sure you thought that was very difficult. And uh, took a church, pastored a church in Lawrence that was an older dying church. When we joined, our two boys doubled the children's program from two to four. And uh, I learned at all of those that perseverance, you've got to have patience. You've got to hang in there and stick with it. And when you do that, God is going to be there with us. We're not alone in that as we fight through these difficult times in life. And I want us to believe at tall grass. We have such good foundational things here. We have good pastors. We have wonderful families. We have a sense of purpose and vision for what the church ought to be like and what we ought to be accomplishing in the world. We have, though we're small, we have some solid, wonderful attributes and gifts as a congregation. I don't know what God's going to do if we're going to be merged. We, we will see how that God leads us through that. But I'm confident that good times can still be ahead for us. Speaking of endurance leading to character, one of my favorite stories, when I coached football up in Michigan, we did character development. We'd spend a few minutes at every practice talking about character traits. And I love to tell the story of a Kansan by the name of Glenn Cunningham. Anybody know who Glenn Cunningham was? Um, and this is, he was born in 1909, so, you know, he probably never reason. Anybody? Nobody at all? Well, you're going to learn then. <laughs> then Cunningham was a great miler. He, was, he held the world record from, uh, I think, 1937 to 1939. But his story is amazing. Uh, born in 1909 in Atlanta, Kansas. Anybody know where Atlanta, Kansas is? Anybody from there? Some of you know where it is. He was severely burned in a schoolhouse fire. His brother Floyd, older brother, was killed in that fire. Somebody put gasoline instead of kerosene, and it exploded and... Uh, severe fire. His legs were severely burned. The doctor said he would never walk. 
So he would literally crawl out of his house out in the countryside, outside of Atlanta. He would take the wheelbarrow and he started just holding the arms of the wheelbarrow to walk as a young boy, seven, eight years old. It was seven when the fire happened. And then as he learned to walk a little bit further, he started putting weight in the wheelbarrow. And he did that over and over and he strengthened his legs and he became uh, a champion high school miler. He went to the University of Kansas. He won NCAA national championships in the mile run. He raced in the 1932 and the 1936 Olympics. He didn't win in the Olympics. I think he got third or fourth. He ran so many mile races and did so well at Madison Square Gardens that they named him the best athlete in the first 100 years of the garden. It was never easy. He said he had to massage his scarred legs every night uh, to keep the blood flowing, and he had to do that before the race to get his legs ready to run. And they still run the Glen Cunningham Mile at the Kansas Relays in his honor, open mile. But he was a man of Christian faith through all of this. And after his career, I was in the Navy for a couple of years. He, he did a, a lot of different kind of work. But then he and his wife established a, a youth ranch. Over 30 years, they fostered 10,000 children through that ranch while raising, hold on to your seats, 10 children of their own. Incredible. You talk about character. <laughs> you talk about a man who through life struggles built human strength and character, but also Christian faith of depth and who gave back to the world far beyond anything the world gave to him. Amazing story. I love to tell it. And there are thousands of stories like that. Lastly, our character leads to confident hope that does not disappoint us or shame us, knowing how deeply God loves us, putting his spirit in us. Joyce wasn't disappointed, and she wanted to live longer, but she was ready to go to be with the glory of God. Glenn was not disappointed or shamed. His life was a glorious testimony of God's power. It brings us back to Ben's message last week, and I have a slide that I pulled from his last week, John 15 how we are connected to Jesus Christ, the living vine, and as long as we stay attached and we let his life spirit flow through us, our lives will be fruitful even when we are overcoming adversity. He shared last week that God promises his spirit to dwell in us and abide or take up residence within us from John 15. And when we rely on him and open ourselves to God's guidance and pressure, presence, and sometimes pressure through such struggles, the very life source of our creator God will flow through us and give us endurance, character, and victory over adversity. Yes, God's pruning sometimes has been shared last week as painful. I love the scripture from Hebrews. I've always loved it. That for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So whether we think of Suffering is training from God or discipline from God, training discipline or just life's normal struggles that all face, good and bad, Christians and non-Christians. It's our opportunity to experience God and to bring our faith to maturity and completeness. I want to ask you to, I want to close. I'd like the band to come on up, the music group. And I want to ask you to participate with me in the final scripture. So if everybody would stand, uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. and. Uh, powerful, powerful message that Paul gives us in Romans 8. 
What I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to read the print that's in bold. I'll read the first part, then I want you to read the bold part. Um, and just let God's glory uh, shine as we share this passage. What? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Right. What shall we, there we go. Who then will condemn us? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted? are hungry, or destitute, or in danger, are threatened with death? And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This teaching was recorded at Tallgrass Community Church. Because God first loved us, we exist to love God and love our neighbors. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church.